Hello, everyone, and welcome to A608 After Hours. Delighted to have with us today, Mark Hecker, who uh, is joining us from DC, and we're really looking forward to our conversation with you today, Mark. Thank you for being here. Um, but first, we're going to reflect a little bit on the week, and Uche and I are going to share what we've been thinking about um, after our class conversations. On my end, I know I've been thinking a lot about risk, what it takes to encourage thoughtful risk taking in the public sector, in particular in schools, and whether that means taking on risk yourself, personally, as a leader, understanding who you are, where you come from as you enter a context, perhaps a context in crisis be that race, gender orientation, other salient aspects of your identity, and how important that reflection is as you grow and lead um, and as you aspire to become a more effective leader. Uche, I'm also thinking about risk just more generally in the public sector, um, especially when we talk about entrepreneurship and how we can take risks with people in the community. Uh, not on people or to people in the community. What are you thinking about? I go back to culture. I mean, I know I sound like a broken record and this is something we've talked about in many of the podcast ses sessions, but I keep thinking about what is the culture, you mentioned the public sector, but what is the culture that impacts how people think about risk? Especially now that, um, we are in this kind of situation where we've got crises stacked upon crises and actually trying new things is gonna be super important because as the context shifts under us, leaders in the public sector and the private sector, you're gonna to have to try new things to be able to adapt. And in trying new things, there's not gonna be any set, this is the right way to adjust. So how does culture support leaders thinking about strategy, um, both in thinking about who are they considering when they think about who they're beholden to? Are you thinking about the students and their families and the communities? Are you thinking about your shareholders or the if you're in the school departments, you're thinking about um, the school committee? That orientation definitely, I think, impacts how you think about risks. I think Liz City, one of our colleagues, likes to use the definition of strategy um, of placing bets. And that is so important at a time like this, because we have to try to place bets to adapt and respond quickly. But to your point, risk is part of placing bet. And there's something that we have to really think about. How do we build a culture that supports risk-taking, but also is very thoughtful about what risk-taking can actually look like, all in, big risks versus more staged strategic risks. Can we even have that conversation? Is that allowed? So those type of things are on my mind. So now I want to, it's my honor to introduce our guest for today, Mark Hecker. Mark is the founder and executive director at Reach Incorporated, a Washington DC area out of school time program that hires teens to be elementary school reading tutors in the process creating academic benefit for both students and tutors. REACH serves over 500 participants across eight sites in the DC area. Before founding REACH, Mark worked in a national center for children and families as both a social worker and a teacher. 
Mark received his EDM from Harvard Graduate School of Education and his master's in social work from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm so excited to have you on here, Mark, because I got my start in education in out of school time. I was directing a small program with probably eight kids doing a lot of theater and dancing and slowly expanded to work with more kids across different areas. So I'm so excited to talk to you, um, especially with the unique model that you use at REACH. Um, anything else you'd like to say about your work, Mark? I, I always have to mention that I also went to Duke. If someone mentions North Carolina, I have to mention that my undergrad is from Duke because it's important to choose sides in that rivalry. And I'm a Duke. <laughs> um, yep. No, I, I I really appreciate the intro and um, you know visiting this class is always one of the highlights of my year. So I'm glad we're able to do it in this form this year. Us too. That's great. So um, yeah, in fact, Mark, I, I always say, I remember where you sat in A608 many years ago, and I remember the very beginning of REACH and all those conversations that you were having with so many different people as you really formulated your ideas. Um, but one of the things that Uche was mentioning, the uniqueness of your, your model and certainly taking risk, but um, throughout your experience and your entrepreneurial leadership, you've been transforming education from the inside out and rolling kids in the change process. And that is such an unusual approach um, and just so unique. And, and so it's important to really focus in on, you know, why did you choose to do that? Um, oftentimes we have, you know, we think about entrepreneurship and education as kind of coming from the outside in. And that's really not the approach you've ever taken, this inside approach, inside out approach to innovation, um, a different way of taking risks involving people in the, in the solving of important problems. But um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, tell us a bit about why you feel this inside out approach to innovation or whatever words you want to use is so central to your work. Yeah, I, I always find the question uh, somewhat interesting because the, it, the idea, it is relatively unique, um, the way we approach, but why? Um, the, the idea of actually putting students at the center of educational innovation, why, why would that be a strange thing? But um, to share a little bit about sort of how I arrived at it, uh, I, I was a social worker in DC, as mentioned in the introduction. And in DC, when you're a social worker, you become the legal guardian for the kids that you're working with. So my introduction to schools was really through IEP and discipline meetings mostly, um, and just finding the kids sort of sitting at the table, maybe paying attention as a bunch of adults talked about them. Uh, and when the kids actually said what they wanted out of the process, it often just didn't matter at all. And from a, from a clinical perspective, that's a certain way to get no buy-in from the kid and no interest in participating in the process. Um, so it always was pretty clear to me that in schools, we often say, you know, if you perform at a certain level, then we'll trust you with additional responsibility. And fundamentally, I just believe that you have to switch that equation. You have to trust kids first and they will rise to your expectations of them. Um, so it really became a matter of uh, just knowing what kids were capable of, even the kids that I was working with and I say even sort of talking about external impressions of them, but the kids that schools thought were the biggest troublemakers and, and hardest cases, uh, 
the kids that I was working with were in foster care, which meant they were often taking care of younger siblings at home. They were often managing life at 13, 14, and 15 that plenty of us didn't handle well in our mid-20s. Um, they had so much put together and sort of understood how to manage stuff that the idea that they couldn't be trusted at all with guiding their own education or determining how to at least be a part of what their needs are. The idea that they don't even know what they need um, is something that just was so clearly wrong to me from the perspective of sitting at a table and trying to represent the interests of a child uh, in an IEP meeting or in a discipline meeting. Uh, and I think I was a little naive going into it that I expected other people to understand that perspective. And that has not always been the case in, in this entrepreneurial journey. But I think um, the best decisions we've made at Reach and, and the model itself is just based on the idea that you can trust teens to make good decisions about serious things. Teens make plenty of stupid decisions. There's no doubt about that. But when you talk about sort of what they need for their future, they will be able to tell you. And if you work meaningfully with them to provide them those, the opportunities to work towards those things, um, great things come from that. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, how you tested this uh, idea? How you grew into this actually, because it's flourishing now. So how you how you tested it yeah, along the way. So I, had the idea for reach in probably 2005 2006 uh, and we were founded in 2009 so during that time um literally i was testing the idea on the on the clients i had in the foster care system um you know when kids were being told that they were reading at a second or third grade level and they were 16 years old um most kids are not going to be interested in sitting down and doing remedial work when they know that it's for much younger kids. Um, but a lot of them were interested in if you could sell them on the idea that young kids reading a lot at an early age is really important. So um, I really want you to focus on reading with your little brother or your foster brother each night. That'll be a good way for you to get to know them. It'll be a good way for um, you to just show your foster family that you want to do well and contribute. Um, and what happens is that kids start hating reading less when they get to actually have successful experiences with it. Uh, I then, uh, Uche mentioned that I was a, both a social worker and an educator at the National Center for Children and Families. Um, I had the opportunity when I was really interested in the idea to go from being a foster care social worker to being, uh, I was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse that taught kids sixth through 12th grade in one classroom in all four core subjects as they transitioned out of juvenile prison. Um, so my teaching experience is very, very different than most, but what that allowed is a lot of cross-age work. Um, when someone really wasn't excited about what they were doing, and frankly, no one was watching to see if I was doing a good job, so I could just experiment in the classroom. And I often paired kids and had them, instead of just like do this unit and answer the questions at the end, their task for the day would be to teach the other one the lesson that they were supposed to learn. Um, and you just see kids take it more seriously. Adolescents are inherently social. Um, and if they're doing something for or with someone else, they're gonna take it more seriously. Um, that's when I tried really hard to find someone to hire me to start Reach. Uh, 
I really wanted to connect with an established organization that was willing to, uh, you know, you guys talked about risk at the beginning, was willing to take a risk and think a little differently about a new program. One that was really, I mean, it's focused on justice more than the current, the accountability structure as it was then in schools. Um, schools were sort of incentivized to get kids from uh, basic to proficient, and we were working strictly with below basic kids that might never get to proficient because uh, they were so far behind, and no one would hire me. And then 2008 came, and the economy started to collapse, and then definitely no one would hire me. <laughs> um, so that's that's when I decided to actually go to the ed school, and I spent a year incubating, incubating the idea, uh, and at the end of the year decided not to seek employment anywhere else. Um, which my mom was really happy about. And I've been doing this ever since. Mm -hmm. Well, talk about taking some risks. Um, one of the things that's come up a lot this week, and I think throughout our work, and as people are trying to kind of navigate and also think about their own role is personal risk. And thinking about your own background, where you come from, your identity, um, you're a white guy working in DC and I would love if you don't mind, if you can share with us a little bit how you think about, um, race and risk and, and what, and how you are, um, not just addressing challenges that you see, but also how you're entering this space. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a huge question in this moment. And, and just for context, um, yeah. I am the only white employee of an organization that serves 500 non-white kids. Um, so race is something that I've spent a lot of time working on. I'm certainly still on my journey of being uh, as anti-racist as I need to be. Uh, and, you know, I've done training with the People's Institute and the Racial Equity Institute. And, you know, I've really tried to dig into what this identity work means. Um, I think for me, the how you enter spaces is really about um, authenticity for me. I'm not gonna pretend to be anything I'm not, but I am here for the long haul. And um, I think that really matters at this point. You know, when I, I have been in DC for 15 years now, um, it's pretty normal for a two stage process to happen when I walk through most neighborhoods in DC. The first stage is that um, people think I'm a cop that's undercover. And then the second stage is someone on the street will be like, oh, no, that's Mr. Mark. Um, and just sort of going through that stage so much, you, you have to be known in the community, you have to be willing to invest in it, not for a year or two, but for, you know, decades. Um, and I'm still sort of at the beginning of that journey. But I think uh, there's a lot of reason for people and especially the black students I serve to not trust white people are actually going to be around permanently. Um, and that skepticism is totally fair. And it's something I have to live with and, and engage with. Um, and that, I mean, that's work I've been doing for 15 years, which I think was helpful in preparing for sort of this difficult moment um, with the layers of crisis that we're dealing with right now. Uh, you know, not only dealing with kids that are uncertain about the future, but a, a staff of young black professional adults that are hurting right now. Um, and how do you actually try to focus on um, doing the work when some of us don't feel like getting up in the morning? 
Um, I, I tell people all the time as a clinician, like I feel confident diagnosing the entire country with clinical level depression and anxiety right now. Um, so I, I think um, we have to realize yeah. that that's the world that everyone's living in. Um, in terms of risk, I think on a very like basic, straightforward level, um, the way I try to live my life is is rooted in some sense in, uh, I don't think we've really talked about faith in this class before, but I'm a Quaker. I take it very seriously. So the idea that people are truly of equal value, you know, if I'm willing to have someone come deliver food to me, then I better be willing to go deliver food to my kids when I need it. So I, I have been out in the community interacting with people as safely as possible. Um, I do feel like it's important to model to kids what are appropriate risks and what are inappropriate risks. Um, and I think, you know, just in terms of how I've been interacting with the world, I think part of leadership is sometimes being willing to take more significant risks than you ask of people that have less privilege or authority in a situation. Um, there's all, I mean, we can also get into sort of the strategy of what chances you take in terms of organizational strategy as well. But in, you know, there's so many different versions of risk right now. So we could go in a million directions. Indeed. Um, <laughs> um, Mark, can I take you back to that piece around what it's like to be a leader in this time of stat crises as we were, you were talking about. So you've been talking a little bit about your authenticity, how you're thinking about who you are and how it relates to the population that you're serving as a white, ma white male working with prim primarily black and brown population. You've also talked a little bit about kind of your core beliefs. What lessons are you taking away right now as you think about what you've had to do Maybe you've had to swerve a little bit, or maybe you've been able to just adapt kind of your core principles in these times. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's one at Reach we talk about a lot, which is just the idea of showing up. And man, have we had to lean into that recently. Um, the, the idea of really the principle that is guiding us now is even if it doesn't feel like we're doing a good job or that things are going well, what we find over and over is that what our kids notice. And, you know, we had an event yesterday where we had some of our teens sharing about their experience with virtual learning and what they speak about, what they notice is that reach keeps checking in on us. Like we, we keep reaching out to make sure they're okay. Um, and I think that's a value like showing up. And I, I think the other side of that is I am, I can be a relatively intense guy. I've had to give myself the grace to know that like, no one has any idea what's going on right now. It is, it is really hard to be a leader in this moment because there aren't right answers. It's not a matter of working harder, or doing better research. It's making decisions based on best knowledge and instincts. And some of them are gonna work out and some of them are gonna feel like you made the wrong call. Um, and frankly, in certain situations, the stakes feel incredibly high, but there's a very intense fear about being wrong. Um, and I'm, I'm obviously talking in that case about like kids' lives. Um, you know, it, that's, it's scary stuff to think about. And I'm sure like many on the call, I, 
for some leaders, this is the first time they're experiencing this. I've, in my career, I've lost five students. Um, so that idea of, and that's all been to one to disease, mostly to gun violence, but that's hard and it is something to be scared of. Uh, and I think that it's changing how we're all showing up, but I'd say the big thing for me is that we're like, we're leaning into the value of showing up and, and being the best version of ourselves. Cause even if it doesn't feel like we're being a great version of ourselves, it's still being noted that we're showing up and then trying to give ourselves the grace for our own imperfections because we can't be right. I love that. Yeah. I love that. When you were saying kind of, as I was listening to you talk about showing up, the way I heard you talk about it was like, so we might feel like what there's so much that's not working. There's the context is overwhelming. However, by showing up, you got to see that it was from the students perspective, the people that you're serving, they're actually getting a lot out of it. And I think that's been a common theme that I've heard you talk about, which is that this asset based approach of thinking about both the kids and what they can offer. So um, society may look at the kids and say the ones that you're working with and say they don't have a lot to offer. But you're saying like, there's so much they have to offer, they take care of their, um, their siblings and so on and so forth. And that focus, I think, has been very consistent in the way you've talked about your work. So even now, where you're doubting yourself, or you're doubting what the um, value of the work that you and your organization are doing, going back to the people that you're that you're serving and seeing, okay, what are they getting out of it? Are they getting something? This is powerful. This is great. And I think that's just super important to always check yourself um, and check your assumptions with the people that you're working with. And I think it resonates with a lot of what we've heard from other speakers. The other piece you mentioned around risks, um, it is super high stakes, I completely agree with you. But there's also the risk of not doing anything. I thought I kind of inferred that from what you were saying, like the ground is shifting so quickly. It's risky, yes, to try to do something, but like you said, nobody knows the right answer. It and um, I think that's super powerful. So. Um, if you can speak to a little bit as a leader, how that culture or that way of thinking about risk or that way of valuing what you're doing, how that's working with your staff or with the people that you work with, if people shared that idea initially or if you're having to somehow move them to that way of thinking about yeah, I mean, I, I think we're very lucky that at, at the moment, this has not always been the case. This is a whole different conversation, but culture is so easy to lose and so hard to build but right now we have a, a really solid one on the team that you know there are lots of educational institutions that talk about putting students first or being student focused but um i'm really proud of the degree to which that's true at reach uh and that the whole team is really willing to dig in and figure out even when they're not feeling good to dig in and figure out what do our kids need from us now and that can be just asking the question, how are you doing? Like, it doesn't have to be an elaborate, big intervention. It can be just, again, showing up. Um, so I think we've been lucky to have that, that culture in place. Um, but the really great thing to see that's happened on my team recently is that we, we ran enough sprints. So we had sort of the crisis that happened in March. We run a summer program. And then last week, our uh, after school program kicked off. So we feel like for the third time, we're kicking off virtual learning. And that each time we've been able to reflect on the experience and get a little bit better at it. Um, so where a lot of organizations were see, see, 
we're seeing sort of a loss of energy at this point. Like people are done with COVID and tired. Um, at Reach, it's actually building because we feel like, you know, this is version three and we're better than we were in version two, it's amazing. which is exciting. These tests with positive results, that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I'm, again, super impressed. And keep keep up the good oh, work. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that you're... You're building at a time when we so I've been hearing, you know, people using the word exhausted and overwhelmed and this and that. It's just so exciting to hear. Um, so I love this conversation. Um, this was just so terrific to be able to dig in with you on the work, your perspective on it, your values, your personal values and how that has impacted the way you've thought about growing reach. It's been really terrific. It's it's left me thinking about um, so many different things. Uh, I love that that line culture is so easy to build, um, so easy to lose yet so hard to build. Oh my gosh. And once you have that culture in place, it makes it so much easier to, to respond, not just respond, but be proactive during crisis. That's one thing I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember. Um, I'm gonna remember this showing up piece because so many times in crisis situations, we think we just need you know, we need a little more research. Let's figure out the right answer. And your response is, no, we actually need to show up. We need to do something. We need to make decisions. We need to, um, we need to not, you know, step back. It's exactly the opposite of what our instincts might tell us. So remember that. And I love also you talking about being in there for the long haul. I mean, that's building. So you talked about building culture within your own, within reach, but then you talked about just, you know, being with community and, and helping people understand that you're, you're there and you know, this is, this is a real commitment. Um, and I think that's also really critical and particularly in entrepreneurship and people are so skeptical. And I would agree right now, people are very skeptical of, you know, the new shiny um, answer here because there are no shiny answers. And um, so, so many things, plus grace as, as Uche knows, I love that word grace, <laughs> you know, and how much we, we forget about having grace during these difficult times, but we all need it, so. So thank you, Uche. What do you what do you love thinking about? Um, I'm just coming back to that student orientation. This asset based, like again, I think yeah. it pervaded everything that you said. So from the beginning, I think you were saying, if you want to know what the students need, you ask them. So it helps you better serve the pro serve the students, but it also just I mean, it values the students as who they are, values the humanity. But then later on, you also, at least from I got, asking the students and focusing on the students also helps you stay, stay solid, stay focused. Showing up for me, that was a way of talking about let's show up, let's hear from the students, let's hear from the people community we're serving. And that's a way of also checking us. And then that also then connects to that grace which um, Monica just um, mentioned that you talked about in general, but at this point, nobody knows the right answer. Give yourself grace, give yourself room to explore. And I think one of the things we talked about both on Tuesday and today was experimenting with, as opposed to experimenting on the community and your work, and that's that that was just a big part of everything you talked about. You're working with the community to try out different things because the default is not working. And yeah, just give yourself grace and give your community grace mm -hmm. as well. So thank you, Mark. Amazing work in amazing difficult times. Amazing work generally, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, do you mind on the lighter side? We always end with some, uh, they aren't all light questions. I have to say that they're a little faster questions. Do you mind us asking you a couple? Um, so the first one is, um, well, we, we like talking about ice cream and sorbet ourselves, but what's your favorite dessert? And it doesn't have to be something you keep in your freezer. Sorbet. Or do you even like dessert? Maybe you don't. Some people like the salty things. Raspberry sorbet. Uh, <laughs> it's not red. Did somebody say sorbet, something? Definitely. How did that come huh? up? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, the, the guilty pleasure is uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I can Any dig it. Any particular flavor? No, I, I'm not a fan of nuts, uh, chocolate and caramel and when the ones with the pretzels inside. I never know the names, but you know, the- The mix I, variety. Yeah, anything that doesn't have nuts in it. I did make the mistake of picking up the chunky monkey one time and I started eating banana flavored oh, no, ice cream. I no. did not. Oh, I'm so with you on that. Bananas are terrific, but not an ice cream. <laughs> yeah. All right, so on hopefully stale positive, but not as light note, um, we were talking about grace earlier. What are you grateful for now? Definitely my wife. Um, I think my family. Uh, you know, in a weird way, one of the things I'm most grateful for in this moment is uh, the young people I get to work with. Um, who bring so much resilience and so much of a, you know, what do we have to lose mentality um, that it, it keeps me energized. Uh, you know, I, I ran an outdoor session with five kids over the weekend just to do a professional photo shoot with some of them. And it, it was my energy for the week. Um, it's yeah. So I'm, I'm very, very thankful for the kids because I love that they're, they're going to be fine. They're gonna I love be fine. that. I would have loved to be that photo I love shoot. That I love the way your face yeah. lit up when you were talking about the photo right. shoot. Right. Me too. Me too. I have to tell, I mean, those that work with kids will know this type of thing, but one of the great things about Reach, we work at eight sites. So when you bring kids from different schools together and they're like meeting each other for the first time, oh, yeah. what yep. they end up talking about. Yeah. When they found out I was a therapist, they were very interested in the idea of confidentiality and if I would be able to tell anyone if they admitted that they killed someone. Like that, where does confidentiality at? Where does confidentiality end? Became this conversation for like twenty minutes. Is is funny? Oh my goodness! Uh, all right, so switching gears uh, uh, quite a bit. When you think back now, um, since a lot of students will be listening to this and others as well, is there something or some things that you wish that somebody had told you about life after Harvard Graduate School of Education? Um, someone could have warned me that 2020 was coming. I might have taken some time. Off. <laughs> um, but I, I think uh, to really dig into the definition of you know phrases like "we're all in this for kids" or "we all have the students' interest in mind," because you just learn over and over again that people's different interpretations of that really change how they're trying to do this work and, and what they're trying to do. Um, mm. Yeah, and figure out, you know, I think I went in a, a little naive thinking that in general, most people want to make equitable education in our country happen. And 
I don't think most people are willing to work toward that, or at least are not willing to sacrifice for that. And I wish I'd learned that a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Said from somebody who's working in DC. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. This was a fabulous conversation. We learned so much and we really appreciate you digging, helping us dig into the work a little bit more, but also asking you some questions about your own leadership too. So um, we wish you all the very best. Thank you so much, Mark. Phenomenal work. Amazing work. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.